right, appreciate that, Hannah. Well, let's look in First uh, John chapter three. First John, you should have a copy of the lesson. It's entitled "The Christian and God's Love." In First uh, John uh, chapter three, we'll begin reading there in verse one. We'll read down to verse ten. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, uh, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, and whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Uh, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, uh, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. What a tremendous passage uh, here. Uh, uh, so many times some people get very confused with this passage. Hopefully we'll be able to understand it and make some practical applications into our life. Uh, um, John has dealt with in the previous chapter some very strong statements in reference to sin and the corruption of the world. And certainly the world is not getting any better. It's getting more and more corrupt. And if he had to write concerning these things back in, in the first century uh, of the early church, then certainly you and I need to be aware of uh, the devastation and the oppression that is experienced uh, because of sin and because of the corruption of this world. After he's dealing with those concepts very strongly, he starts this chapter with his great statement, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And yet in a wicked, that's a wicked world in which we live, in trying times that we have to go through, uh, we still have an amazing relationship with the God of heaven. Uh, he has bestowed upon us his love in sending his son into this world to die for us that we might be able to be saved. Uh, when we understand the wickedness of our heart and the allurement of this world, it is glorious to know that God loves us. And uh, there, I don't think there's a greater experience or greater uh, uh, consolation in the heart of man than to know that God loves them. And uh, it seems like the world goes crazy trying to find out what love is and trying to enjoy some type of acceptance or whatever the group may be. But wait a minute, God loves us and he accepts us in Christ Jesus. And so what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. It is the love of God that brought us to a salvation. And uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the love of God drawing us 
to salvation through faith in Christ. The beginning of John, 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2, John has dealt with this concept of our fellowship. Now in this chapter, he's dealing with uh, us, our sonship. And uh, he's dealing with the fact that we, we are the children of God and there's evidences of being the children of God. And what a privilege it is to, to think that God, who created everything, would love us so much and give us the benefits and the privilege of being called his children. And so he's dealing with sonship. Uh, John is focusing on the salvation in these next few verses. And the way we become the child of God or a son of God is through salvation, through receiving Christ as our personal savior. So first of all, in verse one and two, I just want us to think about the tenses of salvation. Because uh, he says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So he identifies three tenses of salvation in these two verses. First of all, he starts out uh, about our past salvation. And uh, so in other words, there's a place or a time where I was saved. And uh, we trust, when we trust Christ as our Savior, uh, we become a child of God. And as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so the blessing is to know that there, there is a point in time where we got saved. I remember, you know, Harold Camping, uh, when he was always on the radio, and I remember somebody calling in and asking him, well, when did you get saved? And he said, well, I never remember a time when I wasn't saved. And, uh, you know, no, there is a point in the past where we trust Christ as our Savior, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So there is a point in time where we trust the Lord as, we're, our, as our Savior. And the reason why I'm saying past salvation, because uh, it says here, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That's past tense. And so hath bestowed. And uh, there is a point in the past where you trusted Christ. Something that has happened in the past hath bestowed. It, the, the word in the Greek here is in the perfect tense, which means it's an action having been completed in the past. There is a point in time when something happens. So we just don't kind of ease into salvation. Uh, we don't just kind of blend into religious experiences. Uh, there is a literal point in time when God hath bestowed upon us his, his love. There is a point in time where we can identify the fact this is when I was born again and this is when I got saved. And so the perfect tense helps us under it's the active voice so the subject is doing the action. And so the subject of the sentence here in chapter 3 and verse 1 is God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. Who, who, who bestowed the love on us? It was God that bestowed the love on us. And so he's being very clear, just as important as it is to understand there's a point in time in the past where you got saved. You did not get saved of your own will and own abilities. You got saved because God is the one who reached out and touched you and, and gave you his love 
and save your soul. So it's in an active voice. It's in the indicative mood. And uh, so you're getting a good grammar lesson here tonight. It's in the indicative mood, which is a, the mood of a statement of fact. So we're living in a world where nobody wants to state facts. Everybody wants to state opinions. And the sad thing is when it comes to salvation, it comes to talking about God or having a religious experience, everybody wants to share their opinions. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. What is the facts of the issue? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so there is a point in time in the past where you got saved. If you don't know that, you have never experienced that, then you need to get saved. And understand that God wants to bestow on you his love so that you might be able to become a child of God. So there's the past salvation. I was saved. Letter B there, you already figured it out, is our present salvation. In other words, I am being saved. You say, well, wait a minute. You mean we're not completely saved? Uh, we haven't fulfilled the completeness of our salvation until we get to heaven. And uh, so I got saved. I was saved. And I am saved. I'm continuing on in that process of being saved. He says that we should be called the sons of God. And he goes on chapter two, I mean chapter three and verse two. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. That's all present tense. And so it's not about the fact that, woo, if I work hard enough, I'll become a child of God. But rather, the reality is when I trust Christ as my Savior, I was saved, and I am continuing constantly to be saved. And so that will go into the next point when we deal with eternal security. But in Philippians 1, 6, says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has called you to a good work, uh, I'm sorry, that have begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has done a good work in us in that he saved us and delivered us from our sins, and he is continuing to secure that relationship. That's, a, that's an amazing thought of how much God loves us, that he doesn't save us and then throw us away to do our own bidding, but rather God continues to work in our life. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so Paul's trying to help them to understand, as John is trying to help them to understand, that just as important it is to know that there was a point in time in the past when you got saved, you in the present are still saved and continuing to be saved. And that's why he says in chat, uh, verse 2 of our text, now are we, uh, uh, that we should be called the sons of God. And so that's your next fill in there, should be called. And uh, where he says we should be called the sons of God in verse 1, that we should be called the sons of God is in, uh, once again, an aorist tense. So the action having begun at a point, there was a point where God identified us as his children and he continues to go on and, and uh, identify us. It's in the passive voice that we should be called the sons of God. Well, the subject is we. So he isn't shifting here and saying, okay, now you're working out your salvation. No, he says we are receiving the salvation of God. 
And so when we talk about salvation from the vantage point of God, he is the subject of the sentence that's active because he's the one that's doing the action. When you talk about salvation in reference to us, it's a passive because of the fact that we're receiving that action. And so John says, now there was a point in time where you got saved and you are continuing to be saved. That's why it's in the subjective mood, which means the action is dependent upon circumstances, possibilities. And so the, the thing that we de our salvation depends on is the completed work of Christ. And so someone can't be called the son of God. They can't experience the forgiveness of God apart from the sacrifice of Christ. So I was saved. I am being saved. We often talk about progressive sanctification. There was a point where I was sanctified. That's when I got saved, was separated from my sin. There is a constant present sanctification in that I'm becoming more and more like Christ and hopefully moving farther and farther away from the world. But ultimately, one day in future sanctification is I'll be perfectly sanctified, completely removed from any type of sin or, or influence of this world out of my life when I'm in the presence of Christ. So it's a progressive uh, uh, sanctification and a progressive experience of salvation in that I was saved and I am continuing to be saved. Because that's why he says in verse 2 there, now are we the sons of God. And now are we is in the present tense. So now we're, they're being identified as the subject of the sentence. And so we are becoming the sons of God. And that's a statement of fact once again. So I was saved. I am saved. And I will be saved. And so letter C is this, our future salvation. That's why verse 2 he says, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And we know we're saved. We know we're going to heaven. We really don't know what we're going to be. Oftentimes people ask me, what's it going to be like in heaven? I don't know. I've never been there. I'd like to go there. Amen. Uh, the Bible tells us a lot about what heaven is. Uh, people have often asked, well, what, what are we going to be like when we get there? I don't know. We're going to be like Jesus. That's what he says does not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, right now, I can't understand it, can't comprehend it, can't experience it. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so the future salvation is, uh, letter one, there's, number one there is just we shall be. What we shall be, we shall be like him. And I think that's the most important thing for us to think about. Our future aspect, our salvation, is we're going to be like Christ. And the thing is, as we live our life in this, in, in this world in which we live, I'm afraid a lot of people are going to be shocked when they get to heaven and they see who Christ is and what he is. And they see him in his glory. And then we see what, what literally he desired for us to accomplish and to be here on this earth. I think we're going to be shocked when we find out what it's going to be like being in his presence and being absolutely like him. So we shall be is in the future tense. So that's an event that's going to occur in the future. It's not something that has happened right now. There is nobody that is perfect in their Christian life right now. Because you're continuing to be saved in the reference to becoming like Christ. For whom the Lord did foreknow, he did predestinate that we should be conformed to the image of his son. 
And why is that striving going on? And why is that experience continuing? Because when we see him, we're going to be like him. And so we're to live out that future experience right now to the best of our abilities in reference to the Holy Spirit's conviction and guiding and directing us. I like the fact that it's in the indicative mood, so it's a statement of faith. I'm sorry, statement of fact. Statement of fact. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that he would save us, continue to save us, and then mold us and create in us the opportunity to be in his presence to be absolutely exactly like he is. It's an amazing thought. David Jeremiah said this, Saving us is the greatest and most concrete demonstration of God's love, the definitive display of his grace throughout time and eternity. There is nothing greater for us to rejoice in, talk about, share with others than the salvation that God has given us. There is nothing that will change man's heart like them experiencing the love of God working in their heart. And that's what the world needs. They need from us this matter of this is how you be saved and this is why you can be saved and this is what God do, will do in your life if you're saved. And so the tenses of salvation, there has to be a point of time where you got saved, you're continuing in the presence to be saved, and then you're going to be like Christ, and your salvation will be complete when you get into his presence. So the tenses of salvation. I see verse 3 through 9, the tenure of salvation. And, you know, if somebody has tenure as a teacher, that means they can't lose their job. Somebody has tenure in the uh, political realm or in a police force or something like that, they don't lose their job. They're, they're secure, in other words, in that position. Well, we're secure in Christ. We're secure in our salvation. And um, it, it, first of all, we see that it, it practices purification. A security or the sureness of our salvation presents to us the opportunity to practice purification in verse 3. And every man that hath his hope. Now, what hope is he talking about? The hope that we've been saved. The hope that we're going to be in his presence and be like him. So every individual that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And so the practice of purification is by action. He purifieth himself. Now, we have received the righteousness of Christ when we get saved, and God has changed our life and made us anew, but it requires of us each and every day to make the decision that we're going to be pure. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. And so that's a conscious decision. That's an action that takes place. If God's loved us so that he was willing to purify us by saving us, then it is a natural response that I'm going to live my life out in regards to that purification that took place. And so it's by action. Uh, he practices purification. But it's also by possession. Notice in our verse, he says, Every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself. And here it is, even as he is pure. And so we've received the purification of Christ. We live a life that is pure because of the fact that Jesus Christ is absolutely sinless. He is absolutely pure. 
And because of the fact he sent his Holy Spirit to reside in us, we have the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of Christ in us. And so I'm going to practice purification not just by action, conscious decisions on my part because of who I am, but because of who he is. He's in me. And so we're to glorify Christ in every uh, aspect of our life. And so he practices uh, purification, those that are saved. Uh, that's why there's much written in the scriptures about you shall know them by their fruits. Uh, certainly it's very clear in the scriptures that a man's actions show what's in his heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of abundance of, the, of a heart, the mouth speaketh. I mean, all these different passages of scripture that deal with action on our part uh, demonstrates our purity or the lack of it. If we have Christ in us and he's pure, we live our life even as he is pure. And uh, it's not about living a, uh, in accordance with a, a list of rules of do's and don'ts, but it's by practice of conviction of the Spirit of God that is in us that impresses upon us what is right, what is wrong, and who Christ is and what he has accomplished in our life. So it's pra it practices the secure salvation, practices purification. But it also patterns a life of sanctification. Uh, Harry Ironside said this, Christ, this absolutely sinless one, who in grace became sin for us, that we might be reconciled to God, dwells by the whole, I'm sorry, by the Spirit in the believer. And our new nature is really his very life imparted to us. And I think we forget that. Uh, it, it's not about us finding out what religion expects out of us. It's about us realizing that Christ, who is life, has imparted to us life. And he said, I get, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. We have a life that is powerful and, and, and uh, uh, victorious because of Christ that is in us. So a secure believer in Christ patterns his life after the sanctification and holiness of Christ. Why? Here's how he does it. Number one, he realizes that transgression of the law. And he says, whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law. And then he says, why? For sin is the transgression of the law. And I think we have to get back to the concept. We've gotten so far away from the concept that sin violates the law of God. We've gotten so far away from that because everybody's worried about being called a legalist. Everybody's worried about, well, you know, we don't live by the law. We don't live by the law. We live under grace. And you're absolutely right. But the grace of God teaches us. The grace of God reveals to us. The presence of God in us reminds us to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so I want to live a life that patterns sanctification, and that sanctification is aware of the fact that if I break the law of God, then I have fallen into sin because transgression of the law is sin. And so uh, if you're going to live a sanctified life, 
then you're going to live in realm in the realm of I know what God has said, and God said if I violate one point of the law, I'm guilty of the whole law, and so I, I'm, I'm going to strive to obey what God has so commanded, so that I can be saved. No, because I'm already saved, and because I'm saved, and I have the character of Christ living in me then I want to live out that character. I want to live for that glory of the Son of God. So there's the transgression of the law and is involved in this pattern of living sanctification, a life of sanctification. But there's the manifestation of the Son. Notice in verse 5, and, saying, he, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So here's the whole foundational aspect of it. Why should we strive or desire to live a sanctified life? Because of the fact that we know that Christ came into this world to take away our sins. That's why he came. If he doesn't take away our sins or we refuse to lay our sins on him or we refuse to release our sins to the grace of God, then we're living in the realm of forgetting the manifestation of the Son of God. He came for one reason, and that was to save us from our sin. He didn't come so that he might manifest himself to us so that we could live our lives as we, lives as we please. He came to reveal to us the will of God and accomplish the forgiveness of God and the love of God by sacrificing himself. And so ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. There's no other reason why he was manifested. He was revealed for the purpose of taking away our sins. So patterns of life of sanctification involves being aware of the transgression of the law, the manifestation of the Son, but also, in verse 6, the progression of the saints. Notice in verse 6, it says, And whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now the interesting thing is, is the Greek words and the tenses that are used when it reads here, it is whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. <laughs> it carries with it the idea of a habitual sinning. In other words, not premeditated sinning and habitually uh, sinning. The other thing here, I was thinking of this, that uh, um, what gets saved in us is our spirit. And it's God's spirit that witnesses to our spirit that we're the children of God. And so our spirit, our soul gets saved. It's delivered through faith in Jesus Christ. But our bodies are sold under sin. And that's where the issue comes in, is the body wants to live as it pleases and it wants to satisfy its loss and its desires that it has. And, uh, but wait a minute, the spirit that's in us can't sin because the spirit that's in us is born again by the spirit of God. But this body sins all the time. And uh, I've often said the pattern for the Christian is to be the spirit speaking to our minds and our minds telling our bodies what to do. It's a spirit, mind, and body. The problem is this, is things get all whack and all of a sudden the body is dictating to the mind that oppresses the spirit. 
Because the body says, I don't care what the conviction is or what you're saying to me. I'm going to live and do whatever I want. That's why Paul said, I buffet my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should also be a castaway. And he has acknowledged, in fact, that it wasn't the spirit in him. And he's because in Romans chapter 7, he deals with the influence and the conflict and the condemnation and the torment of the suffering in the flesh that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. He didn't say in his spirit. He said in his flesh. And so John is saying this, we have a pattern of living a life of sanctification because of the progression of the saint of God. If you're born again, if you're a child of God, your spirit can't sin, but your body sure can. And so you got to walk in the spirit. That's why Paul said, if you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But before he said that, he said the works of the flesh are, and he lists 19 different consequences of succumbing to the flesh. That's why we have to be spiritual. That's why we need to walk in the presence of God. Because God has saved us, and because he has saved us, we cannot lose our salvation, but we certainly can lose our testimony and, and lose the opportunity of living a life that presents a life of sanctification in the presence of God. And yet God loves us so much. And so we see the pattern of sanctification. Verse 7 and 8, this love of Christ for us, the love of God for us, the tenure of salvation, it promotes personal manifestation. In verse 7 he says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So it promotes this matter of tenure of salvation. It promotes personal manifestation in that, number one, it's identified with Christ. Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Paul says, wait a minute, he that knew no sin took our sin on him. Why? So that he might be able to give us his righteousness. And so the amazing thing is this, everything about our security as a believer in Christ revolves around being identified with the righteousness of Christ. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. But when we don't allow ourselves to live out at righteousness, then we're showing we have a problem, and that's the number two there, we're defeated with the devil. That's why in verse 8 it says, he that committed sins is of the devil. We don't like saying that in the, in the era of political correctness. You know, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He said, he said, you're of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. And the reality is when we live our life consumed with sin, we allow our lives to be controlled and manipulated by sin, we're, we're being defeated by the devil. When there's not ne it's not necessary to be defeated by the devil because we can identify with the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because we're secure in our salvation. So there's no need for us to be defeated. And then it 
propagates true regeneration. Verse 9 says, And whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Once again, it carries the Greek word means to habitually be involved in sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And so the security of the believer is the reality that whether you fall into sin or you don't fall into sin, uh, you're still a child of God. God forgives us. He cleanses us. The, the, the evidences of not being a child of God because in Hebrews it tells us in chapter 12 that if we would be without the chastening hand of God, that we would be as bastards. We're not a child of God. We're not one of his. Because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And so this tenure of salvation, to know that I'm saved, and know that God has given me a life that's to testify of his grace, it stirs us up to say, I want to strive to live my life to please the Lord and show forth his praises. J. Vernon McGee said this, I believe in the eternal security of the believer and the insecurity of the make-believer. <laughs> And that's the problem. I think we have a lot of make-believers in the churches today. A lot of people talk about wanting to be saved, but they don't, they don't want anything to do with living like a Christian lives. They're make-believers. They'll never have peace. They'll never have security. They'll always struggle with sin. They'll always be on and off for God and in and out of the church. And uh, because you truly are saved, you're secure in Christ, and you propagate true regeneration in that you know that, wait a minute, you're a child of God, and so you're going to live in reference to being born of God. And so tenure of salvation. Then in verse 10 is the testifier of salvation. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. And so the testifier of salvation, first of all, is based on letter A there, two families being identified. Two families being identified. And uh, either you're of the family of God or you're the family of the devil, one or the other. And uh, there is no in-between, there is no other option. In Romans, I'm sorry, John chapter 8 and verse 42, Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father he, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And so uh, we have the family of God uh, that is strengthened, letter A there, is strengthened by the spirit. And uh, when we trust Christ their savior, we're adopted into the family of God. And according to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, says that you might, he might, I'm sorry, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 
Because I just can't overcome the sinful thoughts and lusts and desires. Uh, wait a minute. You can be strengthened by the Spirit of God if you're a part of the family of God. And so this family of God is strengthened by the Spirit. The family of God is grounded in love. Verse 17, that the Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God. That we're placed in the family of God. We enjoy our relationship together because of the fact that we're a part of the family of God. And we're strengthened by the Spirit of God because we're grounded in the love of God. And then we're filled with the fullness of God in verse 18 of Ephesians 3. May be able to comprehend with all saints that what is the breadth, length, and depth, and height. And to know the love of Christ which path is knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that that is the major significant and change in a person's life is that they have to be full of Christ. Can't be full of ourselves. Can't be filled with the world. Need to be filled with Christ. And how do we enjoy that relationship? It's based by being strengthened by the Spirit and grounded in His love. We can experience the fullness of God. And so there's two families John is identifying. Either you're a part of the family of God or you're a part of the family of the devil. And I just read John 8:44 in reference to the, the Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And the problem is this, that the devil is a destroyer of life. And uh, there is, listen, there is nothing that the God of this world has for you that is positive. Nothing. John 8, 44, year of your father, the devil and the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so he's the destroyer of life. And uh, I was just talking to someone the other day, and as I was talking with them, we were talking about uh, uh, situations in people's lives where they just, their life becomes basically just in shambles. And they were, he was, they were sharing with me some, of the, some situations about someone, and I told, him, I told him, I said, you know, I preach on this stuff constantly. I preach constantly. If you do this... This is what's going to be the outcome. If you refuse to walk in the spirit, you will fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you will not be sanctified unto the Lord, then you will be drawn into the world. I preach on this stuff constantly, and people tell me it won't affect me. People tell me it won't bother me. Oh, you get, you get too pushy. You get too aggressive. You need to back off. And those same people's lives are ruined. The devil is a destroyer. He is destroying our children. He is destroying our country. He's destroying our families. He is destroying the church. And we will not identify who the enemy is. We're not the enemy. The devil's the enemy. He's a destroyer of life. He's a murderer from the beginning. Not only that, but he's a denier of truth. It says in verse 44 in John, he says he was a murder from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. 
He's the God of this world, and he has no truth. You wonder why people can't figure out what's going on in our world and our communities in America. It's because of the fact they're trying to figure it out in reference to what the devil has to say, and he lies about everything. He has no truth in him. I, I Listen, I don't trust anybody that's not saved. I don't care. I don't care who they are, and I don't care how much they profess they want to be a help or whatever they want to do or whatever they perceive as being good. I don't trust none of them. Why? Because they are living a lie, and they're living in regards to a, 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 a doctrine of lies in reference to the philosophy and life and everything else, and it's coming from the devil. And we, we got to call the devil what he is. He's a liar, and he's a murderer. He's a communicator of lies. It says that because there's no truth in him, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar. And so he destroys. He has no truth. He communicates lies and error. And as a result of it, people's lives are shattered and destroyed. And John is saying, listen, I want you to, I want you to understand this whole concept about the, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Are you a son of God or aren't you? Because there's only two families. Either you're in the family of God or you're in the family of the devil. So there's two families identified. And then there's two fruits identified in this verse. It says, and this are the children of uh, God God, the children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. And here it is. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So two different fruits uh, that are manifested, that are revealed or identified in reference to uh, the outcome of how you live your life. First of all, there's a limited produce. In Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 7 in uh, verse uh, 17, Jesus presents about two trees, one good tree, one bad tree. I'll just read this real quick for you. In, in Matthew 7 and verse 17, Jesus said, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And so, our limited produce... You can only produce what you are. Limited pro a good tree can't produce something that's wicked. A bad tree can't produce something that is good. You can't plant corn seed and expect to uh, pick tomatoes. It just doesn't work that way. Be not, not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever so man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so Jesus reveals that there is limited produce. A good tree can't do evil, and an evil tree can't do good. And then it, there's an exposed produce. He says in verse 20, Wherefore by their fruits shall they you know them. And uh, you can have plant a tree out in your backyard, and you might think it's an apple tree, but you don't know it's an apple tree until oranges come out. Amen? And you know you didn't plant an apple tree. Why? Because there is exposed produce. And John is saying this. Here's the indicator. Here's the revealer, whether you're a child of God or not. You receive the righteousness of Christ as a child of God. Are you producing righteousness? 
If you're not producing righteousness, then you're not of God. And so he helps us to figure through this whole thing, this concept of the love of God is so pure, so clean, so righteous, uh, so life-changing that he plants within man the ability to bring forth the evidences that he's a child of God. So behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us.